The Ensemble podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. This content is created in partnership with our sponsor, Zurich Australia Limited, ABN 92000-010-195, AFSL 232-510, and is limited to publicly available information. Before acting on any general advice, you should consider whether appropriate and obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. Ensemble does not hold an AFS license and does not provide any financial advice or services or endorse any general advice. If a PDS or IM exists, you should obtain a copy and review it thoroughly before making a decision. Welcome to the Engine Room Unpacked. I'm joined here today by Dean Holmes, the founder of the Wealth Network. We're going to unpack the key takeaways from the most recent episodes of the Engine Room to help you implement things in your business faster. You might even have some fun along the way. The Engine Room Unpacked. Zurich is proud to be supporting this episode. The Zurich and OnePath Advisor portal is more efficient than ever before, giving you access to two leading brands with three highly sought-after products, underpinned by two powerful underwriting engines, all with one simple sign-on, making it easier for you to do business and perform at your best. So what is unpacking the engine room all about? Today, we're going to go through the first five episodes of the Engine Room podcast, and we're going to pull out those nuggets of gold that are definitely in there and make it really easy to provide you, the listener, with some great value. Now, just for those people with a short memory who aren't addicted to this podcast, the first five people um, on our podcast Engine Room were Coastal Advice with Mitch Boutique, Advisors over there in WA with the lovely Belinda, sufficient funds with the the madcap James, first wealth with the incomparable Corey, and EJM with Peter. Now I'm joined here today by uh, my partner in unpacking, Dean Holmes. Welcome, Dean. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to great to be here. Really excited to continue this discussion around the business of financial advice. I think we're both passionate uh, in being former financial advisors, both of us, in passionate in the business around delivering great financial advice to clients and and unpacking these five today is a great way to take all of the learnings that have come through these these podcasts and to try to turn them into some actions that that the listeners can take to roll into their businesses. So we've got five themes, Andrew. Do you want to talk us through the themes? Yeah. So we thought we'd make it pretty easy, and um, uh, we we've got just by pulling out and and asking questions, the big big themes are um, what is the vision of of the practice manager in each of the businesses. The values, which leads into the biggie, the people, what processes are in each of the practices, and then what the ownership is and how that relates. So vision, values, people, process, and ownership. So with that in mind, Dean, and you've, you've, you've spent time studying all of these, what jumps out at you? Where would you like to start? So let's start with vision uh, because I think that that's a key part of any growing practice to be really clear on where the where the company is going. And so one of the one of the ones that we really enjoyed listening to Andrew in terms of vision was Peter uh, down at EJM, 
because that was all about him understanding but really well articulating what the vision was. And so they've today got about 1,400 clients, as he said, and the vision is to take that to 15,000 clients. Yeah, 15,000. So, it, was, it was quite a big statement when he said it. So that's a, that is the definition of a big, hairy, audacious goal for those that follow Jim Collins. Uh, and so that's a great uh, business plan to take, it, take the business up to 15,000 people and what we – 15,000 advised clients and what we love – about that as well was actually that it flowed through the entire business. So everything from that first day that they're actually hiring staff, that vision was communicated to that they want to hire 15, look after 15,000 people. And it's constantly within their business at all times. And so we really, really picked up how important vision is in all of the five people that you interviewed uh, uh, to date to make sure that not only that you have it, but you're actually articulating it to uh, staff, clients, and anyone within the industry as well, because you can't do that alone. And when we talk about um, the the EJM business, one of the interesting parts of vision is actually the founder Manny having the foresight, as that many founders are, of actually allowing Peter to grow into that role. Okay, and moving from a very traditional, one would say almost an old-fashioned like a lot of other businesses too, into a very corporatized and a business that's going to, you know, grow and grow and grow. So so vision sometimes is knowing what your strengths are and bringing the people in as well, which I picked up on that one considerably. Absolutely. And that was a that became a theme because that's the same with if you think of look at Belinda and look at Mitch in their roles within the businesses, both of them are operation at their at their core. So both Belinda and Mitch are not financial advisors that have just gravitated to the top of their top of their company. They're both coming in with specific operational backgrounds. And I think that that's really key because they see problems differently. Uh, advisors getting to the top are always, and this is still a great thing, but always have client at their mind. Uh, whereas once you come to through it from an operational perspective, whilst you still understand that you're serving clients at the end, you're really focused on the the factory uh, or the operation of how everything's happening within the advice process. And in relation to uh, Peter's big, big hairy audacious goal, I think we've got um, a, a bit of a soundbite um, from his, his uh, one, which we'll play for you now. And um, afterwards, we'll come back and just reflect on what he said and how he's been able to have that as the founding sort of guidance of where they're growing their business. So let's have a quick listen. So as a business, um, we set our big, big, hairy, audacious goal um, back in yeah, BHAG back in 2018 and we gave ourselves 15 years to achieve the 15,000 happy clients. We talk about that in the first interview and people know that we're a business that's focused around growth. So that was set back in 2018. So the idea of setting your big, hairy, audacious goal is one thing and acknowledging that uh, that he has given or the business has given the right time frame to achieve that. So you're not sitting there saying that I want to move from 1,400 to 15,000 in a matter of years. Uh, that's a 10-year vision of where the, where the firm wants to go and that's really valuable that, that Rome wasn't built in a day that you actually need to work at these things over, over time. Absolutely. And I think the other, the other um, component of that vision is that it's, it appears to be driven both inorganically and organically, which when you talk about 
sort of the the mega themes in in financial advice um, at the moment is is really the scarcity of competition has meant that almost all firms have got more demand than than they can they can supply. And it's it's only those firms that that actually sort their engine room out that will be able to benefit from this, you know, once in a generation mismatch of people wanting advice versus people who can supply it credibly. Absolutely. So that's a key part of the theme of everything that we're going through today is that that the the job of actually making sure that we're building the business that delivers financial advice is key. Um, so articulating the vision for the clients is is one element of that, or for your staff as well. The second element, the the second theme that we're talking through, Andrew, is is values, and they do go hand in hand in terms of building. An appropriate practice is that not only have you set the vision for the company and where you're going, but making sure you're getting the right people on the bus. Uh, as you know, I've read Jim Collins a couple of times now. Uh, so being, being clear in the company values, I think is the second important thing. And lots of our, uh, the first five actually have, uh, can talk to their values and they actually talk to their values at the start of the process. So even if you go all the way to Corey, Corey's built a, a PowerPoint ple- presentation. Oh, I know. He sent it to me a few <laughs> days earlier, which I needed all those days to, to go through it. It was so, very strong. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, it's an amazing thing for a, a, for an SME, first and foremost. So like we, It's not Commonwealth Bank in terms of the size and scale that Corey has. So an SME is that, that's taking the time to actually document what the company values are and turn that into a hiring process at the at the outset so we think that the second the second valuable theme across all these practices was actually being clear on their values being able to articulate the values first and foremost but then also live and breathe the values i know peter as the example he's a um he lives in melbourne so he's a bit bit of the fan of the mcg and so they had the brownlows uh theme in terms of their values and i thought that was really interesting because they high they reward their staff based on living the values more than anything else more than generating revenue and things like that it's it's key to focus on company values and i think all of the 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 five businesses um well my first observation um is that that they're all significant headcounts um and they've grown significantly and i have a feeling that that over the last in particular five years these people got to work on their client value proposition from the get-go and once they ironed that out, they realized that it doesn't do much unless you've got your people value proposition. And by having clear, by linking those two together and figuring out what's the best client to work with the best people, then the art is how do you find these people? So what jumped out at you as far as sort of the, 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 the finding of talent because, and, and what, what inspired you upon listening? Well, the first thing that in the people context for me was actually the science of personality profiling, to put it into a category. So, Corey- They were all doing something along those lines, correct? Absolutely. So, Corey uh, shared an experience in terms of his use of people logica. So, there's about another three important steps and it takes about five hours. So, we book it, like we'll book book the day out with the majority of the day. So- what we'll do is we'll get them to do high-performance benchmarking. So hiring is both an art and a science. The culture stuff is more the art. The science is more around trying to identify, does the person have the capabilities to do this role incredibly well? 
And so Corey's use of people logica was the same as James. And it's actually something that we've used in our practices uh, for almost the last 12 years. And so the science and the, my personal evidence is every time I overruled the personality profiling, I got burnt. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Go science. Yes, exactly. Exactly (laughs) right. So, um, the the shout out in terms of using people logic as an example, we've known Mark Mark Beverick for for that 12 years. Uh, The science is really strong that this is a leading indicator of choosing the right people. And so, we can't use our guts anymore. We probably should should have never used our our guts. Uh, But the science for these type of uh, tools is really important. So, James and Corey both use PeopleLogica. I know Mitch does a disk profiling. And so, the combination of those things, make sure you're getting the right people people in your business. And... Even when you go down to using remote staff, which we'll get to in a little bit uh, in terms of teams, lots of there's a theme of having remote teams in the Philippines as well. Uh, there's no reason why you can't test them in a similar way. People are people. Correct. And, and I think that um, uh, another uh, journey that almost everyone went on is, and we're all guilty of it, you know, we've been employers for many years, you and I, Dean, is that um, initially you would go with your gut. Um, and uh, I think that that things, whether it was DISC or Clifton's or, or HPDI or, or People Logica, you would just have that as I've ticked that box. But I, you know, I, I'm omnipotent. I know what I'm doing, and you don't. Mm. Okay. And um, uh, the the interesting thing is that 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 some of the big changes that these people have identified is when they went to hiring slow. Okay, we get excited because we're quite optimistic, excitable industry about someone, a piece of, you know, someone who's talented coming on. But it's the companies that's really, really slowed down their process and hired slow. And I think we may even have, I think, you know, what, what Corey referenced, um, is probably the slowest hiring, but the most deliberate hiring. And, and when you're against a backdrop of almost no unemployment in this country, you just can't afford to make a talent mistake um, because it takes a long time to bring someone on. And if they're a bad egg, not a bad egg, but if they're just not compatible and you haven't done the work or, or used the profile, then it's on you. Um, and there were some really unique methods of like interviewing. What, what's, what jumped out at you? The, the two, uh, both Corey and Peter, uh, both had the last say with their team. So the last part of the interview ended up being uh, with Peter as the example and Corey is that two or three of the, the team within Verse and EJM actually interviewed the new potential candidate. And the question is, quite frankly, could you see yourself working with that person for the next 10 or 15 years? And uh, if that answer was no, then it's a no. And so I thought that that was really powerful uh, just in terms of a small business hiring people. Are you going to add in small business when you add one person, it's significant compared to if you've got 6,000 employees, you can have, uh, you can make mistakes. But if you think about a business with 20 and you're adding two people, that's 10% of your workforce, you have to get it right. And you have to have that culture and team alignment. So the guys that were that were doing that as part of their process, I thought that that was really amazing. Uh, Corey gets a shout out because he has a six hour interview process. So if you if you actually make it through that, you're, uh, you can work for the whole day. Uh, but everyone had a theme in terms of how they brought people within the business. And also a bit of honesty around the mistakes they made previously. 
um, you know, as far as rushing into decisions and whatnot. Um, when you reference that, that um, of the first five, the, the um, Mitch in Coastal and, and um, Belinda in Boutique had come through the operational or, or um, more the pure play practice management style, even though practice management didn't exist when both of these people entered the industry, it's now becoming more of a designation, which we're hoping at the engine room, we're helping promote. Um, it was clear that they were serious about process and the I feel that they that the rigors around process that they they led with has enabled them to gain the confidence and faith of their respective founders and CEOs. Okay, so so and I think that it's only once the founder sees that you know I've got this or you've got this that they feel confident in being able to start taking recommendations. So what jumped out at you um, in relation to both of those practices in, in relation to the process that they're, they're doing? Um, and as an aside, they're both growing tremendously. Mm. So uh, Mitch at Coastal Advice Group, what I found really interesting about the, the process there in terms of him taking on the, the management role or the business management role was essentially that he realized, as do we all at some point in time, that advisors are best, the best use of advisor time is sitting in front of clients. And so we've got a quote to share with you from Mitch about the time that he thinks ideally you should sit in front of clients. In our big, hairy, audacious goal of 70 to 80% client-facing time, our expectation is that we book a specific amount of time for a, an advisor meeting, which should encompass enough, enough time for them simply to do the file note, goals, strategy, and scoping for the plan, and walk out and simply be able to have somebody that is trained, educated, and skilled enough sitting, I won't say behind, but next to them, to just pick that up and run with it. And I really think that this... That, that percentage was, was, is really the North Star. You know, I think if you interviewed every, every advisor, um, and, and I have a bit of a saying, uh, you know, if, 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 if the financial advisor is your front office and our engine room is the middle office and, and, and people have back offices, they're the easy ones. They just want to see clients and they want to know that what they say can be done by their team and they're so simple. You ask an advisor, I've got a spare day up my sleeve a week, they'll go and write revenue because it's the bit they actually like. So to have a vision of that 70 to 80% mark, okay, is a really high North Star, especially against the backdrop of the last couple of years. And I think the hardest job is being able to, to build the ecosystem underneath the advisor, not so they can do it, but so they they feel confident that what they say in meetings gets done because their reputation is paramount. Absolutely. And that that is process, Andrew. That's the key of what Mitch has been able to communicate, for example, saying essentially saying to his team of advisors, we're heading towards this 70% uh, client-facing time and we will take care of everything else in the background. We have to know and understand what the processes are. And so the investment that they're making in technology as well as, you know, he's still called out that there's a few spreadsheets hanging around, which, which we all have. Uh, but the idea that they're heading towards that is key. And so that was Coastal Advice Group. Belinda talked about mistakes uh, that the business made. 
in terms of technology in and around process. So they moved to a different CRM. And they did the CRM roundabout. Yep, correct. So everyone, everyone, not that Belinda made this mistake, but we, we make t- tech mistakes often as the advisors because advisors probably made the decision as opposed to business managers making They're the decision. They're shiny. Some of them are shiny. Absolutely. And so Belinda moved everyone, moved the business back to X-Plan and that would have been uh, – difficult change management to move from one system back to another system essentially but the reason and rationale from from my perspective and listening to her is that the the business couldn't run on that other software that it needed x plan as they're calling out what it was but it needed that more robust software to actually get things done and it that decision couldn't have been made by an advisor agreed and um uh, also, advisors don't like to admit they're wrong, and that's because you know we're previous advisors, so um, we're we're coming through that. We're working through it, therapy, therapy. day by day. Um, one of the other things when we're talking about people, just to go back to the theme of people, is um, we had a once in a generation occurrence. Um, the last couple of years, we had this thing called COVID, and although we're we're clear of it, thank goodness, as we speak. It really did impact different people differently. It wasn't until we sat down and discussed this podcast and put all the companies up on the board, I went, you know what, four of the five practices were in lockdown. A couple of them were in Victorian lockdown. And I have a bit of a feeling that lockdown made them look microscopically at every part of their business and just changed the way in which they – interacted with their people, okay? So, in fact, just to counter that one, Belinda and Boutique were in Western Australia, and I've got a great quote here, which um, which I've seen with a few WA businesses where they didn't go through that same change back in 2020, 2022, but maybe just grab a quick soundbite from Belinda on COVID in WA. Yes, so we're in Subiaco. Uh, everyone works in the office. We do have a couple that... Uh, occasionally we'll work from home. We were very lucky with COVID that it didn't really affect things with us and having to move, you know, home and work for one or two years. So we are very grateful for that. So my gut feel is that Melbourne went in hard. They had to literally figure out how do we communicate with people. New South Wales and Sydney followed. Where I'm finding Western Australian practices are, they're now getting that talent squeeze. And I think, you know, when when Belinda spoke about her uh, her practice, they're, they're now really digging deep into organically bringing people through. Um, there was reference about a program at the university um, that they've lent into. They've got two associate advisors from that. So the, the theme is, is that you can't just hang around and just expect talent to pop into your lap. Sometimes you've got to go and actually co-create it. And so Boutique uh, have gone in and co-created that talent with the universities, um, which was something that stood out for me amongst the four of them. And I think that's because um, WA's talent squeeze is happening now. Mm. Um, this has been a bit of an echo. It's been a bit of a delay, essentially, because they could all – Belinda was – they were all working in the office the entire time, which is completely different. And you look at James's business and James uh, – works any works anywhere he you'll have a we'll have a quote from james in a second and it moved then from now where we are now we have no location 
We don't have a head office. We don't have an office anywhere. And uh, we've got team in Australia from Cairns down to Tassie. And uh, uh, as I said before, we're talking about the Philippines. We've got a half our teams in the Philippines as well. So uh, in terms of structure, we anyone can work from anywhere. We don't mind that. Um, we've got to, you know, do a lot around engagement and make sure that we're still catching up and doing all that type of thing. Um, but yeah, really, really works well. And that's amazing, James. That that there's a complete business that is remote anywhere. That it doesn't matter actually where any of the staff is located. And I love that for the two reasons: a, you can get talent from anywhere in Australia as a result of having that attitude, which uh, is is interesting. So Belinda could be grabbing a Sydney advisor if they had this ability to work anywhere, for example. But the other thing that, about James and a few of the other practices is that they're uh, by working anywhere, when you had this concept that you brought what I call remote staff, so typically there's a theme that the, the Filipino staff is part of most of these practices as well, which we'll get onto, but the idea of that it, does, it doesn't matter where your people are located in Australia, you need to expand that slightly broader and say, well, actually, it doesn't matter where your people are located in the world now and our ability to grow our practices using people because we're a people-heavy business at the moment. There's a lot of administration and paperwork that needs to get done. And so the ability to grow and scale our teams both in Australia and abroad is a key theme of lots of these practices. And I think that when you talk about um, the the scaling, I think gone are the days where people just take a punt, spend some money. If you look at the cost sort of structure and the EBITDA that's being demanded, and and there has been, there's there's no doubt about it. The you know small practices may still be the last vestige of recurring income, but the reality is everyone now is being valued on the profit that they derive today. And the probability of that profit continuing in the future, or, or EBITDA, to be quite specific, and um, you know the best and brightest are looking at around about that thirty to thirty-five percent EBITDA, and you've got two levers on how to do that, or three. Let's say three levers. One is your pricing. Okay, so it's already well documented that that the price for financial advice has gone up forty percent in the last two years. That's well documented to the general public. Um, so that's one element. Um, the other element is your cost structure. So how do you manage your cost structure? And some of that, to be honest, um, also um, leads to the way in which you're licensed. Um, and the first five, not one single common license. We've had people in there in two of the larger licenses. So we've got um, a practice from RI being Coastal, um, practice from AMP being EJM, and then we've got three self-licensed businesses. Yep. So it doesn't seem to be, you know, the old adage of if you're in a licensee and you're in a big one, you make more money. Or if you're self-licensed, you make more money is actually redundant. It's got to do with what you do with it. Absolutely. I think it, licensing is almost somewhat like a fixed cost. Like the cost to run your own AFSL is fi- is fixed. I would argue that most most advisors that are trying to run their own AFSL aren't valuing their time in the savings that they think that they're going to get by becoming self-licensed. But the the cash out the door is is fixed, and as I'm sure as you get bigger and bigger in terms of licensee world as well, the 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 fees that you pay start to become fixed. But definitely as a percentage, then it's much smaller than your uh, people costs. 
The oh, people, hell yeah. People costs are still the largest uh, amongst all of the practices. And so to hit those EBIT, EBIT numbers that we're talking about, Andrew, most practices are trying to balance off the administration and work that needs to be done and ensuring that that's done by a cost center that is that is the right for the for the business. And so we've seen four of the practices build offshore teams. Um, and so the theme around that that I that I I communicate to people that I talk to and it was really evident through this process is they never use the word outsourcing. Outsourcing is not what these businesses have done by any means. They have people, humans, that work for them in another country. Part of the team. And so being part of the team is really key in terms of what we spoke about earlier about vision and values, making sure that the, your, your Cebu-based team, as these are, making sure they're actually aware of where this business is going and they vote for the values and all the, all the employee of the month and things like that as well through the, through the process. Um, and then we go over and visit them. So Corey went to a wedding of one of one of the staff members. I'm not sure if that made the podcast, but I do know Corey that you went over, and that's amazing. Um, I know James has gone and Peter's gone to visit the team, and and the ability to not only have that support network um, located in 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 Cebu, but then treating them like humans that you can go over there. Um, it works very well. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the um. The, the other common theme, um, and look, a shout out to the, the providers of, of, of those teams. The common theme is that, that the companies that they're working with value data security, they value process, and they're aligned. So they're not cutting any corners. And I think, um, collectively, I think they've, you know, one of them's using, uh, Five Elk, one of them's using VA Platinum, one of them using virtual business partners that, that, that I'm, I'm associated with. But the common theme is that they get it, right? Okay. So it's not, it's not picking out which one's going to be the better service provider. It's how you include them in your people strategy and how you, cause, cause, and how you include them in your team and communicate, which, which is absolutely that there. And that's allowed, that's allowed these businesses the, the time to think. Mm, I, I'm not saying that it's made them money from the get go. I'm just saying that it just gives the people in the businesses in Australia time to breathe and from that, they can innovate. And on that topic, technology. Um, what was your take on technology across the first five um, uh, engine rooms? Look, it was it was interesting because um, not everyone was chasing bright shiny toys. So there was a few that were still uh, using Xplan as as the workhorse of their of their business. Uh, I know that James, for example, uh, uses um, Basecamp. Uh, which I only know a couple of advisors that are using that as a tool. And so I thought that that was quite interesting because he was uh, not not restricting himself to the traditional uh, CR- CRMs through that through that process. And Mitch was using a couple of spreadsheets. So there's a variety of uh, tools. And I know Mitch was trying to, he won't be happy with that. I know he's, he's looking to uh, automate the process there as well as we, as we all are. Um, but yeah, there was a few different, there's nothing consistent around tech except to avoid the bright, shiny toys. So Peter was avoiding it and Belinda definitely went back to the core. Yeah. And I think, look, if there's anything to take out um, as a learnings and if any of the tech providers are there, there's a market for for getting it right, okay. And so, what what the advice practices and their RMs and their licensees are doing at the moment is just playing safe. Um, 
but I think that um, hopefully over the next year or so, um, with potential sort of tailwind in, in regulation um, or deregulation in some respects, that we'll be able to see better engagement of tech and, yes, less duplication. Mm. You know, um, uh, the inefficiencies around some of the duplication between the tech platforms, um, you know, must really get on people's nerves. Um, I, had a, I had a thought as well. Um, none of these businesses are getting smaller. And um, although I think Peter and Mitch from EJM and Coastal laid out quite a successful and albeit aggressive um, sort of inorganic or merger and acquisition strategy, all of them came back to the theme of growth. And I was wondering what your take is on this thing that we ne- we almost went to sleep for 10 years called marketing and financial planning. So who do you think does it well and what, what learnings did we take out of the first five episodes? So I think with marketing, firstly, that marketing – there's a lot of clients out there and we know that there's a lot of clients that need financial advice. And so there's the demand. So what the marketing has shown us uh, across these businesses is that they're actually now clear in who their ideal clients are. So it's less about you know putting an advertising on a building, for example. It's more about actually communicating to the to the potential audience what the ideal clients are. So Verse Wealth, as an example, has a marketing engine. Uh, Corey spoke about his, the, they use an agency to do a lot of the uh, work in the, in the background. And so he's created a marketing en- engine by virtue of ensuring that his target, ensuring that the pool of clients are aware and then the target clients are aware of Verse Wealth. And I thought that was really powerful in terms of um, not only just you're not throwing money away in terms of Google ads, but you're being really clear on who your target market is so you get a return on the investment. Um, so that was doing really well. Um, James is also doing well in the in the context that his marketing is in partnerships. And so I, I like the idea that thinking about his partnerships, he was actually he actually gets some referrals from a couple of the other podcasts. Uh, in in relation to fi- finance, finance general advice podcasts, and so his marketing partnership is more around supporting that uh, than advertising anyway. Same with Peter. I don't remember the gentleman in the business that's actually doing it, um, but EJM is now having a partnerships person. So there's someone within the business that is going to accountants and law firms uh, to actually work on that higher level referrals and. And the idea that advisors love to get referrals from accountants is absolutely true, but that takes a lot of work. And so if you think about if we all head towards Mitch's number of 70 or 80% client-facing time, there's actually very little time to then go and talk to accountants to get leads. And so the marketing activities of EJM means that there should be sufficient leads coming into the practice. And the theme around that is that as businesses get bigger – there is a cascading amount of referral opportunities and client referrals that just start to happen. And so it's this scale that has happened for all of these businesses that clients bring new clients into the business as well. Absolutely. And when we talk about the the scale opportunity and the people that you need to grow, because we are a people or a talent-dependent business, we spent a bit of time on on the different um, types of recruitment processes and and whatnot. Um, these days, though, what's keeping people? You know, we're at, we're at record low unemployment, um, and 
as an as an owner and a practice manager of these businesses, one of the key things you need to present to your your CEO or your board or your ownership is the techniques and strategies you have to retain key talent. And out of the the people there, what are the different kinds of things or even ownership? So ownership of the whether it's the firm or ownership of that division or something like that. What are you seeing, Dean? Because you know, I'm also then going to probably do a shout out to yourself because the Wealth Network, that was the premise of of of, of how you've built businesses as well. So what are you seeing in these five? And maybe reflect on on some of the anecdotes from your own personal journey. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So um what we're what we're seeing in this regard is first first and foremost the building of uh f- the bigger practices and so when we focus ourselves on building bigger practices uh we need to retain more and more staff and advisors within that practice so the way i look at that first and foremost is that advisors owning part of the practice over over time and having a pathway so that they can see that not necessarily buying into the practices on day one, but actually being able to see that in years three, five, seven, and ten, I'm going to build my ownership within the, within the practices. Uh, reflecting on my the Wealth Networks journey, essentially what happened for us was uh, that we were at the other side of the other side of the coin, and we were observing that advisors weren't being offered equity within their practices. And so we were there as the Cinderella that picked up that opportunity that advisors, if they weren't being offered equity or weren't being offered a path to owning part of their practices, they were willing to leave and frankly start their businesses from scratch. And so if you, if we don't have a ownership strategy within our practices on terms of how advisors can own part of the business over time, um, they will leave. And they will come, they will look to start their business from scratch or look to start something where there is a path towards uh, co-owning the practice. I think that it's essential for uh, the, the, the older advisors within the practice that do want to retire that they need a plan to bring in younger advisors to do the work, but also to transition the equity from one generation to the next. There's not always going to be a corporate buyer to buy your shares. There's, there hasn't been a lot of examples in the last five years of big corporates buying up lots of financial planning businesses. There's no last resort anymore. Oh, what well, you mean? Uh, the buyer <laughs> of last resort? No. The buyer, like, and, you know, just generally, if, if you can't find a buyer, the price is not the price. The, the price has to keep going down until you find a buyer. So... Well, and the great thing is, uh, you know, the, the juice is worth a squeeze on that because if you do have a going concern that generates uh, good cash flow and good profits, the valuation is far higher than what it would have been under an old model anyway. Absolutely. Um, from the ownership perspective, there's many ways of, of ownerships and, and, and some of these businesses are thinking about it. Some of these businesses uh, have already implemented it, but I think specifically the practice manager or the general manager or the chief operating officer is a key part of the ownership structure um, for any aspiring founder who's looking to do a succession plan. Historically, people weren't as keen on it because they, they aren't revenue writers mm. and it's not simple, i.e. you generate this new revenue, you get this thing. But I think we can be more mature than that. We've got plenty of other professional services companies to look at, whether it be law firms or accounting firms or 
engineering architect firms where you can see the value of a well-run business. And I, I think that the, the takeouts are that every single one of these practices I've been thinking about succession. I think, um, you know, Belinda even said that they're planning on being around another 30 years. Mm. But that doesn't mean the same composition of ownership. Oh, absolutely not. We've got to hand over that ownership to the next generations. And so uh, EJM, as the example, is rolling up. Well, maybe that's not the right term from Peter's perspective, but they're buying uh, firms in other locations. They've got multiple offices and they had an interesting model whereby they were essentially having the share ownership was at that second level. So if I'm a satellite office uh, in Geelong, my ownership is in the satellite office until such time as I earn my stripes to have that rolled up into the yeah, you're back you're backing yourself company. And yeah. so that's a great model because then you can build something for yourself. Uh, but then have that liquidity at the back end to go, well, I'm going to roll that into a bigger business. That bigger business has a has a corporate shareholder, as we understand. And so there's some type of liquidity mechanism there because if we keep building our businesses and don't get liquidity, uh, we're either collecting the dividend forever, but that's still a hard prospect as well. Absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, when I ask people's vision for the future, these particular practice managers – we're in furious agreement that you need to have a level of of scale so that you can build capability and capacity to service the clients in the manner they deserve and in the manner they're paying for. Um, these five businesses employ hundreds of people, as it turns out. There was I was surprised that the, the businesses are growing, but I think that that also you know I'm not against small businesses. And we do interview small businesses throughout this series, but they need to almost become hyper-specialized. Mm. So if you look at the law firm um, or the law industry, for instance, they're your barristers, they're, they're your special, or maybe the medico, they're your specialists. They might be just good at aged care. They might be just good at um, you know separation or divorce. They might have these particular niches that they do. But I think being a generalist and being subscale you're going to be found out by the clients. Yeah, it's difficult. I think that if you speak to a few of the older advisors, uh, the question is starting to come up about retirement. So uh, if you think about that, you know, if your advisor is in their 60s and you know that you're helping the advisor that is in their 60s is helping those clients into retirement. And the question, frankly, is, well, when are you retiring? What's your retirement plan? And then what's the retirement plan for me as a client of, of yours? And so it's key to, to work out this succession. And if you're a, if you're a solo one-man band, uh, one-man band has a challenge of what happens in, in a succession context. Um, I did some research recently, and there's a couple of different AFSLs out there that uh, will turn off all the client fees the moment you're incapacitated. And so not debt, not always dead, but TPD. And so the moment that happens, the value of your business just went to zero because all the fees got turned just off. Just brought the mood down there. I know, I know. We don't want that. So the, the other call out, and we're seeing larger businesses here, but businesses that merge, and EJM is an example, and so is Coastal, where they're actively looking to buy but also merge practices together and that's really important that just because you you're not selling at that point in point in time you're actually merging with someone bigger that's actually allowing you to do what you enjoy the most 
and not waste your time on things that you really, you can't honestly say that you enjoy. And when we look at these businesses, even though we're now talking about how they're successful in different aspects and different themes, they all still have talent issues. Mm. They all still um, have an acute uh, requirement for talent. And and we're talking about the next generation, be they associate advisors, be they uh, you know administration into customer service, into practice management. There's just a requirement across the board for all of these people. And what's what are the sort of things that would drive a youngish or young at heart person into a practice? And I suppose, um, um, you know, coming from someone who, who, as it turns, a bit of history, um, Dean worked for my practice when you were a wee child, um, many, many moons ago. And then you, you saw the light, of course, and started the yep. Wealth Network. Congratulations. Um, but do you think, do you think that they're creating the environment that younger people want to be in? If so, what are they doing differently to everyone else? Well, firstly, they're bigger. So I think one of the one of the interesting things, and don't quote me with data on this one, but younger younger humans want to work in a community of younger humans. So the challenge, if you're, uh, and this would be interesting to talk to James about, if you're if you're a youngish business, i.e., you want to have young staff within your business, those young staff want to work in an office. Just generalizing, but they do want to come together in a, in a location and learn from one another. And the, the art of financial planning is an apprenticeship that the way in which you learn how to talk to clients, you do not learn that at university and you do not learn that in the first few years unless you're in and amongst client meetings. Now, those meetings can be digital. I absolutely agree with that, but you've got to do the apprenticeship. And so the, the, ability to bring the younger staff in is actually thinking about how we're going to make them get them exposure to the meetings get them exposure to other colleagues whether it's directly in the business or within a community like ensemble but we have to create these little pockets of excitement to keep people engaged whilst they're doing the admin but the counter argument to that is it didn't fall over in the last couple of years and People have managed to build remote teams. So absolutely. So, so right here, right now, we've got we've got businesses that want everyone back in the office, and I get it. Okay, but we've got businesses. If you're a young person, what do you value more? Do you value community? Do you value collaboration? Arguably, you can have collaboration. Community, yes, you can have it digitally, but we all know there's a bit of a, an X factor with face to face because you have those incidental sort of conversations. But the flexibility of a young person to maybe live and raise their family outside of the big cities of Sydney and Melbourne in particular, because they're dear as poison, um, is also quite alluring. So it's a tough gig. And I think that in 2023, the jury's still out. I reckon by the time we get to the end of 2024, we'll go, that's the thing that worked. Right now, we don't 100% know, and I, I, I can't tell. Um, you know, coming from someone who's got people in the office right now, and I'm literally sitting here. We can high five. You can hear. Yeah, that was physicality. <laughs> the sound guy laughed. Shout out to Kieran. Um, no more jokes, Kieran. Um, but there's from that extreme, but we also then have remote teams as well. So, um, look, unpacking these podcasts is important because. For many people who come on as practice managers, this is their first radio on a podcast. They are quite often nervous to tell you about what they're doing 
because they're not quite often, they're not the lead singer in their band. Quite often they're the band manager. Quite often they're the person who is doing those things. So what I urge you to do is if any of the things today saw that, just jump back in. Have a listen. By the way, lots of really quality links. So um, you'll note that a few of the other companies referenced today, be they tech or be they any other or, or recruitment, we do put all those links in. And in relation to the engine room and the whole premise of it, is I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts here, Dean. You mentioned these are, these businesses are big, but um, where is financial advice going for for these engine rooms? Is it is it get big or get out, or is there room for other operators? Oh, there's absolutely room for other operators. I think that at the end of the day, when we look at some of the data about the number of Australians that need. And, and do have the capacity to pay for financial advice. They may not see the value, which it's our job to articulate the value, but there's enough Australians to get advice over the next five years that it adds another 50 clients per advisor. So the, the reality is, is that if I gave 50 clients to every advisor in Australia right now, the engine rooms probably wouldn't be able to deal with that capacity. And so absolutely, we've got the opportunity to serve more clients through face-to-face strategic advice. And so we're going to grow those engine rooms over time. And and the two ex- the difference we have at the moment is that some of the practices are growing much more organically. So they're just acquiring clients through their marketing engines uh, and others are growing through acquisition. And so acquisition is a little bit easier to then build the engine room because you have the revenue and the cost at a similar time. So you buy a business with a million dollars of revenue, you know you can spend $600,000 servicing that million dollars the next day. The challenge, like if we look at Corey and James, is they've got to sort of balance the two, that they're growing organically, which means there's a flow of clients coming in, but the recurring revenue hasn't arrived in the traditional sense. So they've actually got to- They've got the J-curve going on. Yeah, they've got to be careful with the cost base. Mm. How do we how do we manage the cost base? And the reality is, is that- the cost base is 150000 You can't hire half an advisor. So you've got to take these steps to say, I'm going to hire an advisor, which means I go backwards a little bit in profitability to go for- to go forwards. And how long can you delay your gratification? That's the, uh, the million-dollar question, isn't it? Well, if, you, if you're – yes, absolutely. But the reality is, is that all of them have clear visions and those visions are bigger than themselves. And so they are delaying their gratification in that context, Andrew, because they're they're building something that's much bigger than themselves. And you know what else I like is that um, we've spent a whole a whole podcast talking about the business. Now, a lot of great insights on who they invest with, what platforms they're using, the insurance companies—they're all there. Dig into the podcast if you're interested in that. It's all there. But but the actual essence is is it's. Finding the best business partners, and you mentioned that having a quality vision is important because every other theme cascades from that. You know what else I've just observed is none of the first five have the word financial planning in their names. So that's a departure from from history. They've they've got imaginative names that they feel reflect the type of clients that they've that they're after. And in the same way that they've attempted to to find their good people, 
they've tried to align those people to the types of clients. And I think that that's a, a powerful statement. And, and um, uh, I'm sure we are going to get a lot of financial planning practices over the, the next couple of uh, sort of sessions and listening. But um, just yeah, just a quick observation there. And in fact, you're the Wealth Network as well, right? So Absolute, it's, um, Absolutely. It, it's working well. Well, I would love to take the time just to thank you, Dean, for, for your insights. I'd like to thank our sound guy who, who is so, Kieran, who's, who sewed together a lot of these quotes. Um, and look, we look forward to coming to you with some insights and some nuggets of gold so that you can pick and choose the, the assets and the resources you can do. And that just furthers Ensemble's unwavering, persistent desire to promote the positive evolution of financial advice. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers.